Amen, indeed, and thank you, worship team, Pastor Steve, for leading us so well. We are continuing on our series today of faithfully following the true gospel. During the earliest days of the church, there was a lot going on. Christ had promised in Matthew 16 that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Now, Catholics take this verse to believe that Jesus was saying, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. But the grammar of the Greek and context doesn't support this. Protestants, if you're here, you're probably a Protestant. You believe that it was the confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's on that confession that Jesus was going to build his church. And notice what the text says. That the the gates of hell would not prevail. Meaning that the idea is that there's some sort of invasion being done by the church. Sometimes good people read this and think, well, what it means is Satan can't conquer the church. We call that right in theology, right idea, wrong passage. The idea is that Christians are raiding the dungeons to, to set free those who are captive. And we saw that in the birth of the church. Acts 2.41 says it this way. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'd call that a good day of evangelism, wouldn't you? And it didn't stop there. At the end of the chapter, we read, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So much so that in Acts chapter 5, we read this, more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes, both men and women. I don't know how much multitudes is, but it sounds like the early church had a counting problem. So many people were coming to know the Lord. So if you're tracking with the narrative so far, even though Jesus had been killed, even though the apostles at one point give up and just say, I'm going fishing, Christ's promise to build the church was happening. It it was happening even so much that that as the church grew, they they had to grow in their administrative process as well. And and the office of deacon is created by the pastors to to aid in doing the ministry of the church. Now, one such deacon who who rises to the top, who who rose above the, the rest was Stephen, who the scriptures tell us he was full of grace and power. And was doing wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and those of the Alexandrians and those from Sicily and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So you got a, a man who's a leading deacon in the early church, and he was doing the job of a deacon so well that when folks argued with Him, the scriptures say that they couldn't even withstand his wisdom and the spirit that was inside of him which was speaking. So the early church was quite the place. 
You've got early leaders rising up and they're arguing with the Jews and, and the text, it can't even withstand the argumentation. If you know your, your church history, what comes next is they put him, this early leader of the deacons, on trial. That they hated him so much, the power of his arguments were so great that instead of try to refute or repent, they just put him on trial. At the end of his defense in Acts chapter 7, we read this, but, but they, that is the mob, they cried out with a loud voice, and is often the case when arguing with people who are being divisive, they stopped up their ears And rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Not marijuana from Michigan. They they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So mob justice took this young man away and murdered him. And Saul whom we would later come to know as the Apostle Paul. He he was right there stoking the flames of all of this. In fact, even in the next verse in your Bible, you'll read this, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. It is unfortunate how the ESV renders the word approved. It almost has this passive connotation. In the NASB, we see that he heartily agreed with it. It's not that Paul was reluctant to see mob justice done to the Christians. and He's like, okay, I suppose. He was there stoking the flames. Because he was going to use, and I want you to lock on here, that's the point of this introduction. He was going to use the murder of this deacon to create fear in the early church. He wanted people to be afraid to be associated with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as we discussed, eventually Paul is converted. It's a bit of irony right here, right? The guy leading the charge against the destruction of the church ultimately becomes one of its great leaders. But the outcome of the fear that that Paul is trying to bring to the early church is that the church in fear scatters. But in its scattering, because of the persecution that arose, because of Stephen, it traveled far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. That's the Greeks. That's the the Gentiles that we've been talking about preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the people, they run for fear of their lives. And in a great irony, instead of putting out the church, what Paul has done at that moment is create more and more. And as the church begins to grow, word gets back to Jerusalem like we talked about last week. Word gets back to Jerusalem that the Gentiles 
Greeks, the Hellenists, they're even coming to salvation. And so the church there, when the word reaches their ears, they send Barnabas to Antioch to investigate. Paul had tried to use fear to put out the early church. And even the the fear that Christians had, right or wrong, even that fear, God ultimately was able to use that response to grow the early church. And as we study our text here this morning, what I want us to see is that fear, it, it can destroy our faith and our witness. But ultimately, even if it does and we succumb to fear, ultimately, in a Genesis 50, 20 kind of way, what we meant for evil, God can use for good. Follow along with me as I continue reading in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way to verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, that's Paul speaking here, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. We're considering this morning how fear can destroy, can destroy our, our faith and our witness. You can tell that I'm locking on here to the point that what was Peter's response? He, he was fearing the party of the circumcision. Everything in our narrative flows out of the fact that Peter... When he came to Antioch, he was living in fear. He'd begun by walking in the gospel of light, and then eventually fear had gripped his heart. Now, before we get too far down into this point, I want to highlight here by walking through some other passages real quick that we see the people of God struggling with fear all throughout the Bible. For example, in the opening pages of Scripture in Genesis 20, we read of Abraham, the father of faith, struggling with fear so that not only once, but twice does he give up his wife. Guys, can I say that if you give up your wife out of fear, you're going to have a really bad day. We also see Moses after defending the life of one of his kinsmen, and they begin to fight and argue, and they know of his murder of this Egyptian, that that he, in fear, and God uses this, in fear he runs from Egypt. We even see David out of fear, even though known as a man of courage. 
when he's running from Saul and encounters another Gentile king, he fears this man greatly. So the point that I'm trying to make in our introduction here this morning is that the Bible is replete with examples of the children of God, even its leaders whom we would lift up, struggling with the issue of fear. And fear as a response is nothing new to the apostle Peter. You're probably already beginning to think through one such instance where he's on the boat and, and seeing, or on the water coming out of the boat and, and seeing the great wind, he, he becomes frightened. He becomes frightened because he's worried and cries out that the Lord would save him. Or towards the end of Matthew's gospel when Christ predicts his death and his crucifixion, Jesus says to him, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Why? Because you're so afraid to be associated with me in that moment that you will lie. And you guys know how the story goes. Peter is undone by a little slave girl. When that rooster crows... He goes out and weeps bitterly because he remembers the word of our Lord. So this morning, we're thinking about how how fear can destroy our faith. It can destroy our witness. But what I'm trying to make really clear is that this is a common issue. And that because it's a common issue, no temptation has overtaken us such as common. And God is faithful. He won't allow any of us to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation, he will provide you, he will provide me a way of escape so that we can endure it. Each and every one of us, I believe, is going to struggle with fear. God doesn't promise us not only that that will happen, but that he will give us a way of escape. So how will fear then destroy our faith, destroy our witness? First and foremost, it leads us to hypocrisy, not love. Fear leads us, and why do we need to take this issue so seriously this morning? Fear leads us to hypocrisy, not love. We saw this in verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself The word in the text, drew back, it's actually a military word. You're meant to get in your mind for a moment, two armies coming together, and one of them seeing that they were going to lose, and so they withdraw, they retreat. That's the word that's being used to describe Peter's actions. Paul is trying to highlight the, the purposed, intentional nature of Peter's action. This isn't some recoil that, that happens when you get scared of a snake or a spider. Right? I've seen grown giant, six foot six, 300 pound men who, seeing just a little bit of spider, they run for the hills. It's not that kind of natural reaction that we're talking about. This was purposeful. When Peter saw these men, he withdrew the Christian fellowship that he had with these new believers. He separated himself from them. 
Part of it had to do with the Mosaic law. Part of it had to do with race, right? He was Jew. They were Hellenists. They were Greeks. He could not be seen to be among them. And why did he do this? Because he wasn't worshiping the right thing. There is always a connection, beloved, between what we fear and what we worship. We see that all throughout the Bible. There's a call to fear the Lord. And in that call, there's also this hand-in-hand relationship with worshiping the Lord. Peter, and so many times us, if we're being honest here, we end up fearing people. And when we're fearing people, we cannot worship God. Our eyes are not on the risen Savior in that moment. Our eyes are on other people. And so Peter wasn't able to love the Gentile Christians because he was so afraid of the Jews who were coming from Jerusalem. And that fear was so dominant in Peter's heart that he was unable to love the people that God had placed right before him. Instead of modeling the gospel and what it looks like to love and to lay down one's life, he he recoils, he retreats. Now, Now, before we get too hard on Peter, what I've been trying to also emphasize is, is we have all been there too. We've all feared something more than we fear God. It might be people, but but there's something else, you name it, success, pleasure. There's other things that you might fear. And because of that, we end up being hypocrites as well. And so as as we see Peter's response today, I would encourage you, I would ask you to consider What are the areas in your life where fear gets the best of you? We see for Peter, it's the fear of man. What is it in your life? Now, I know some people talk like this. They say, fear is not a big issue for me. That is actually why I went through in that really long introduction to highlight Abraham, Moses, and David. And I think we could go on and on. In fact, it would be really interesting if we spent time one day just going to the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and saying, what do we know about these individuals and their fear-based responses? I think we'd find a lot of it there. The point of that introduction was to show you how common it is, and I believe almost even universal. So I'm asking for you to consider today, how how does fear of something in your life, something other than fear of the Lord, how does it drive you to hypocrisy and not to love other people? Let's be slow to say that we don't act out of fear. Let's inspect our own lives and find where it might be lurking. In fact, it might even be a really good exercise to get the the people in your life whom are closest to you, spouse and friends, and to ask them, where do you see me yielding to fear in my life? Because I hope that you would agree with me that the closer that you're in relationship with someone else, the more that they should have an acute awareness of our sin. 
Meaning sometimes there is a tendency in churches to to not want other people to know our failures and our shortcomings. The Bible does not provide us a model for that. That's why time and time again, the Bible's happy to put its main all-star cast up there and to show you the failures and the weaknesses that they have, in part, to demonstrate the authenticity and transparency that should exist in the life of the church. The larger point that I'm trying to make here is that I hope that all of us would see what happened here in Peter and not look down at him, but to recognize that there are areas in our life where fear may get the best of us and prevent us from loving those who who are right in front of us that God has called us to love. Now, before we leave verse 12, we've got to address the issue of men who, who came from James. If you remember, we talked about last week, and we established that it was James and the, the early church leaders who said that the new male converts to Christianity, they didn't need to be circumcised. And then all of a sudden, it appears that the text is saying, men come from James. What do we do with that? The most compelling answer is that these men weren't really and truly and fully from James in a formal sense, but but they were associated with him lightly. The reason that I would conclude that is in James's letter to this church after the great council in Jerusalem, he highlights this very problem. Since we heard that some of our number to whom you get that we gave no instruction. James had heard about this problem, and he wants to set the matter straight. We didn't give them instruction, even though they disturbed you with words and unsettled your souls. So the point is, while these men claim to be from James, from the church at Jerusalem, the reality is they're not. I think it's an important point to highlight here that in the middle of fear and problem solving, sometimes... Sometimes the facts just get muddled a bit. The second way that we see that fear can destroy our faith and our witness is that it will drive you out of the way of truth, not into it. Fear will drive us out of the way of truth and not into it. But, but when I saw that their conduct was, and he's using a purposed metaphor here, it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, Paul's picking up on a metaphor that that not only starts with early Christians being known as people who walk in the way. In his own trial and defense, he references how Christians were called the way, which the Jews called a sect. But it has deeper Old Testament references that go all the way back to the beginning, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is known as the Shema, where Moses says, you'll teach the law the way to walk to your children when you, when you walk and when you lie down. And we see the concept of the way picked up in the book of Proverbs, for example, in 4.11 and elsewhere. I've taught you the way, the path. Using the language of walking on a path, going on a way, is one of the most common and reliable pictures that the Bible uses to demonstrate righteous living. In fact, you've probably even heard of the word repentance before, and the word literally means to turn around. 
Because it's picturing you walking in life on a particular path and you were headed in the wrong way and now you are turning around. And so what Paul does here is he picks up on this metaphor of walking, walking in a manner that is not consistent with the truth. Peter was walking in the way of fear and it drove him off the path. It will do that to us. Fear will drive us, beloved, off the path of truth. But notice that, that, that Paul draws a line between the, the inner wrestling of our hearts to, to things that he actually did. Paul knows that as a man thinks, so he is. He knows that there's an internal wrestling in our heart that eventually, and what we see here is that those works are played out. The Bible does make a difference between the internal disposition of fear and acting out of it. The Bible doesn't focus often on the internal as much as it does what we do with it. But left unaddressed, that's what happened here with Peter, left unaddressed, those fearful thoughts led to his actions. Which is why it's so important, and Paul would say elsewhere, it's so important for us to take every thought captive. Because when we allow our minds to to run the race of fear, that will inevitably, left unchecked, it will inevitably lead to action So fear in the mind is something that I believe all of us have to wrestle with. All of us have to struggle with. And I hope that as we look at the life of Peter here, that we see that when there's fear in our hearts, it is eventually going to lead to action. And that action is eventually going to take us out of the way third thing that we see from our text is that fear is often contagious. Fear is often contagious. Paul writes this in verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him, that is Peter, in hypocrisy with the result. What happened? Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. If you remember, and that's why I highlighted Barnabas' coming to Antioch, he was sent to investigate what was going on. The Jews held him in high esteem, and when they saw Peter and the guy who had been there with Jesus acting this way, others, even Barnabas, he joined in too. Just picture for a moment in your mind the sad moment in church history. All the, all the titans of faith, one by one, succumbing to fear. It's a great reminder that we dare not lift up any particular man of God, since they are men who can easily fall. That isn't to say that we can't appreciate and, and value the ministry that people have here on earth. But this passage reminds us that this side of heaven, even the strongest rocks of the church, they're just men. I think it also highlights for us one of the greatest challenges of being in leadership. 
Who is Satan most interested in attacking? Leadership. I'm not saying that he doesn't want to attack the sheep. I know that he does. But Satan is most supremely interested in destroying the leadership of the church. Because he's seen that time and time again that if he can attack the leadership, then he can bring others with him. Honestly, I think it's a great reminder for you to be praying for your pastors, to be praying for your deacons. We are men just like you who are regularly attacked by Satan and our own weaknesses and our own flesh is in there. We see the early church, we see fear gets the best of one of its leaders, even to the surprise of the Galatians and those at Antioch, it got Barnabas. Fear is contagious, and it's most contagious when it spreads from the leadership of the church. I can honestly say that I'm thankful that I often want to hear from folks. They, they tell me I'm praying for you, or they're telling me how they've been encouraged in such a way. In fact, even when I was writing this sermon, a dear church member shot me a text thanking me and trying to encourage me. I honestly viewed it as a word from the Lord. And so, beloved, let us take seriously fear. Let us see that fear is contagious, that we have to deal with it and deal with it right away. It will, it will take us off the path and it will turn us into hypocrites who will ultimately not love those who are right in front of us. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Thank you, Pastor Griner. That was quite the downer of a sermon. Happy Sunday to you as well. Let's talk about the solution to fear. It's faith in the truth. The solution to fear is faith in the truth. That's one of the solutions that's presented here in our text, how to fix fear. I'm not saying that it's the only solution that the Bible presents, but it is one of the most common and successful solutions to fear. Truth. Truth that is revealed from God's word. That we see this truth unfolding in a powerful question that, that Paul asks Peter, drawing his mind to what has been revealed. And he does it this way. He recounts that when he saw their conduct, wasn't in step with that truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before all of them, sin publicly, you have to deal with the sin publicly. If you, though being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... Here's the question, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? As a side note, sometimes when we think about the word confront, I think most Christians are surprised to see that the model of confrontation that we see in the scriptures is often a question. Meaning the first thing to fly is not accusations, but questions. And Paul demonstrates here in a, a master class stroke how to do this. He asks a question. A mentor of mine used to say, a question pricks the conscience. An accusation hardens the heart. So Paul uses the truth to get to the heart of these men before all. The solution to our fear is truth. 
time and time again. When, when we look at the Bible and we see one of the most common solutions to fear, you'll see over and over that it's using the truth, specifically the truth revealed in God's word. We see this par excellence in Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Be anxious for nothing. Uh, call not to be fearful. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, do what? Let your requests be known to God. And what will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, then what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's anything excellent or worthy of praise, dwell on these things. How do we overcome fear? We think on what is true. That's what's being shown us here. The, the solution to our fear is faith in what God has revealed. I think it's true, though, that many of us know that we ought not function out of fear. But when it, when it comes time to finding peace in the, the middle of the battle, the reality is we don't have that at all. Beloved, we have seen the devastating effects on Peter when he lives in fear. And I'm sure that as you've tried to recall, you can see those devastating effects in your own lives. If the solution to fear is faith, then, then why is it that we often find that we have failed in the battle. Let me at least give you one reason why I think if the solution is the truth, we often fail. Because we've failed to put the armor of God on. We've failed to do what this verse tells us. The armor of God, it works best when it's already on. The sword works best when it's already in your hand and you know how to use it. So believers, are you regularly preparing for the day when you will have to fight fear? I've asked you to consider what are the aspects in your life where you're tempted to respond in fear? And if you know what those are, then I would encourage you to develop a plan that you can do exactly what this text tells you to do. To see that it is faith in the truth, the truth of the word of God, that will aid you in overcoming responses of fear. Let me give you then three resources that will help you do this, specifically, especially if you're noticing in your own life that fear is prevalent, fear is powerful, and fear is something that you want to grow in. Uh, the first is this called, When I Am Afraid, a step-by-step so you know it's going to be practical. You know it's going to be easy. A step-by-step -step guide from fear and anxiety. That one's not in the library. It's on its way, but it's an excellent book to aid. Or there's Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Overcoming Fear, Worry, and Anxiety. Another excellent step-by-step -step guide, generally curtailed towards women, although guys, you'll benefit from it too, on how to overcome fear, worry, and anxiety. Or lastly, but a bit shorter, Dr. Stuart Scott's anger, anxiety, and fear. He puts those three things together because we often see people functioning out of those very same emotions to do sin.
There's a lot more that we could put up there by way of resources and steps, but at some point, I know you guys want me to finish so you can get to your other worship service for the day, the Super Bowl. But as we, comp- as we land the plane here, I mean, speak to anybody here who's not a Christian. Fear has a grip on your life as well. I'm not talking about that, that you might be afraid of the things that we've been discussing, but, but fear has a grip on your life in a very different way. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death, that's Jesus' death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil, in case you couldn't track with all of that. And what did Jesus do? He might free those who... The fear of death, they were subject to slavery all their lives. The scriptures teach that if you're not a Christian, deep down, you might have suppressed it, you might have ignored it, deep down you have a fear of death. And Christ came and he died so that you would be free. Not only free from the fear of death, but free to live with him in eternity. And so if you have not yet trusted in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to save you from your sin, in one very real way, your life is dominated by fear. And we'd love to sit down with you and talk with you and share with you how you can know freedom from that fear from Satan. Believers, I hope that we see that Peter acted out of fear. It drove him off of the path of truth, and it led him in a different way, and ultimately caused him to stand condemned because of his hypocrisy. But praise God that he provides us with a way out, that if we stand and believe, and we have faith in the truth of God's word, and we dwell on that, that it will deliver us from fear. We join me in prayer. Our Father, we come before you and we confess that each and every one of us is fearful. Each and every one of us in our own ways struggles with fear. And so, Father, we come before you asking for help, praying that you would guide us as we walk the path of faith, to trust in your word, to rely on what is true, what is right, what is noble and excellent to dwell on those things. Father, for anyone here who is enslaved to the ultimate fear, the fear of death because they have not yet come to know Christ, Father, I pray that your spirit would be moving even today to lead them to salvation. We ask this in your son's name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.